The Lord calls us to worship this morning from the book of Psalms, chapter 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. Amen. Father and great God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for this day that you have given to us, that you have set aside in your wisdom that we might gather as your people to worship you, to sing the praises of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we thank you that we have gathered here together today to praise you in thought and in word and in deed, and we pray that you would be with us now by your spirit, that our worship would be full of your presence that it would not be any play-acting at all, that it would be from our true hearts that we worship you. And we join our hearts together now as your people, Lord, as we pray, as you taught your disciples to pray, saying out loud, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hear these words of assurance. Actually, excuse me, I apologize. This morning for our confession of faith, we're going to be reciting together the Apostles' Creed. It's on page 845 in the hymnal if you'd like to look at it as we read and recite together. I'm going to begin by asking you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, hear these words of assurance of pardon from the book of Psalms, chapter 113, beginning in verse 4. It says, The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust 
and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's continue to worship now singing hymn number 525, A Child of the King. started 
uh, some conversation on the Apostles' Creed. Does anybody remember what we talked about last time? Who knows what the Apostles' Creed is? You ever heard of it? Have you ever heard it today? Yeah? We recited on Sunday mornings. And last time, two weeks ago, we talked about, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And today I want to talk with you for just a few minutes about what the phrase means that comes right after that. Does anybody remember? I believe in God the Father Almighty. What's the next part? Maker of heaven and earth. That's right, Danny. And what do you suppose, somebody else, Titus, what do you think that means? Maker of heaven and earth. What do you suppose that means? All of heaven and all of space and all of the galaxies and earth. That's right. He made everything. Everything that you see, He made you and me. He made things that you can't see because they're so far away. He made everything. How many of you ever feel like, I am just out of control? One little hand went up. (laughs) Sometimes it's easy to feel out of control. But that phrase that you just recited this morning, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, means that nothing is ever truly out of control. It means that His sovereign hand is caring for and is responsible for everything. That His works of power and providence care for you and your family, this church and the world that we live in. He's in charge of all of it. So if you ever wonder, how in the world is anything getting done? You can be sure that the maker of heaven and earth is the one who's doing it. Let me pray for you. Our Father, I thank you that you are the one who created heaven and earth. And that all that we see, and even the things that we don't see or understand, you made. And you made us as your children. The Bible says that you, when you created man, you created them male and female. You made us in your image. Lord, we pray, I pray for our children, our covenant children here this morning, that you would assure them of your power and presence in their lives, that you would remind them as they walk outside, as their toes tiptoe through blades of grass, as they step on dry leaves, as they run through the yard, would you remind them that it is you, the almighty creator, who made everything, and that you have your eye on them as your children, that they belong to you. Lord, we pray for them, we lift them up to you, that you would protect their minds and their hearts, that they would be soft to the gospel, that as they hear the word of Jesus Christ, of grace and love and peace through him, that they would believe it by faith. Lord, we thank you for all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. For our responsive reading this morning, uh, please turn to page 812 in the hymnal. We're going to be reciting together Psalm 74. It's on page 812 in your hymnal. I'll begin with the light portion. Please respond out loud together with the bold. Psalm 74. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why is your anger against the sheep of their 
Remember the people you purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. They said in their hearts, We will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? But you, O God, are my King from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You establish the sun and moon. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, O Lord. How foolish people have reviled your name. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Now for our pastoral prayer. This month we're praying for two missionaries, Brennan and Becca McCafferty, who are in Cambodia. And they shared some prayer requests and praises. And I wanted to uh, pray through a couple of their prayer requests this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I wanted to share a couple of these prayer requests with you. Uh, first, they asked that we would pray for wisdom for them to know how best to use the last few months of language learning that they're using in the language school there in Cambodia. They have been attending online classes and they have been very helpful and they know that this time is coming to a close soon and they want to know best how to use it and to acquire the Christian vocabulary they need to be able to communicate the gospel. They also prayed for physical health for their family. They've had some difficulty and challenges Obviously, being there in the midst of COVID is a challenge enough, but they've also had other challenges in their bodies. And so they're praying that uh, the Lord would protect them in this time, in these last few months of language learning, and that they wouldn't be frustrated or distracted with any of these challenges that come along. Let's uh, go to the throne of grace now as we pray for Brennan and Becca McCafferty.
Our Father, we thank You that You hear us when we pray. As we lift up our hearts to You, as we cry out to You as the God who is there and who hears us, we come to You asking for grace and mercy. We come with our hearts heavy with needs that are on our minds, things that have occupied our time all week long this past week. Some of us are feeling very urgent in our minds about needs in our families. We're feeling desperate for grace and for help. We need other hands to help hold up our weak arms. Lord, we grieve. We are anxious. We are worried. We are out of energy. And we pray, Lord, that You would meet with us by Your Spirit. That You would comfort us who are grieving. That You would supply need to those of us who are without And Lord, we pray that most of all, you would pour out your spirit on us today, that as we hear the gospel preached, that it wouldn't bounce off of our hearts, that it wouldn't go in one ear and out the other, but that we as your people would believe it, that it's true and real, that the scriptures are your word that you gave to us. Lord, we pray that you would use the salve of the gospel to comfort our hearts, to bind up what is broken in us. Lord, I pray for those among us in our church family here who are struggling physically and mentally and emotionally, those who are in the hospital or caring for someone who is ill, Lord, we need energy and sustenance and strength, and we cry out to you to supply it. Lord, we do also raise up to you Brennan and Becca McCafferty, missionaries that we support in Cambodia, and all that goes along with packing up and leaving and going to another land, Lord, we pray for them that you would remind them of the calling that you put on their life to serve you in this other place, to be away from what is comfortable and normal, what home looks like, the streets that they are not used to seeing and faces and people that they're not used to seeing are all reminders of a land that they are no longer in. And I pray, Lord, that you would sustain them and give them strength, that as they are homesick, that they would love one another and cling to Christ, that they would weep if they need to, and cry out to You. Lord, I do pray for wisdom for Brennan and for Becca, that You would give them great discernment in knowing how to best use these last months of language learning, that they really would be able to retain the things that they are studying. And I pray also, Lord, that in Your kindness You would give them physical health as they finish up this time of learning, that that would not be a distraction to them. But Lord, we know if You you allow sickness to come into their home that You will sustain them. And so we pray, Lord, for grace to trust You and to believe, even if they do get sick, that You are with them and that You will provide. Lord, I pray now as we open Your Word that You would fill our hearts and our minds with Your Spirit. That we would know that it is You who speaks through the Scripture because it is Your Word. We thank You and we praise You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 1. This is the book in the Old Testament between Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth, chapter 1. This morning we're beginning a new series entitled Searching for a Redeemer as we look at the Old Testament book of Ruth. I'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. 
And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilian also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. I'm hoping in the next month or month and a half to look at the book of Ruth and see the beauty of the gospel in the story of this family. It is the story of an ordinary family living in a time of desperate need who saw great tragedy and sorrow and pain and also the joy and hope and belief in the gospel. They looked forward to the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come and save His people. It's a beautiful story of a small family and the mysterious ways that God works to save and preserve for Himself a people. For people who wonder where God is, this is a story, a book to read. When there are no dreams and no visions and no prophets, when tragedies mount up and seem to be attacking your faith, and you wonder, does integrity really matter in the world anymore, in the hardest of times that people live in? Would it just be better to follow the crowd and fit in and not call yourself a Christian? Not say you belong to the Lord. And when you can't imagine how anything good can come from an ordinary life of faith, it's just not worth it. This is a story to read and to behold and to remember the goodness of God even in the face of difficulty and tragedy and sorrow and death. This story is written from the perspective of a woman, Naomi. Most of it is written from her perspective and not from her husband's, not from another man. This is rare in the Bible and it should get our attention. It's a reminder that as God created in the book of Genesis, when He created man, He said, I created them male and female in the image of God. And it raises up for us wonderful, strong, bold women of faith who followed the Lord. They did it in faith, not knowing what was in front of them, not knowing what was coming next, but they followed the Lord. And they laid a heritage that ultimately at the end of the book of Ruth we see was a heritage that brought none other than King David, the greatest king that Israel ever knew, who was in the line and lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the great Redeemer of His people. He did that through strong women. Praise the Lord for strong women in our church who are faithful, who love the Lord, who serve Him and us sacrificially. Praise the Lord. We don't know the human author or the date of the writing of this book, but we have confidence that it is the Word of God, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. This is a narrative story 
You're not going to find long passages like you might in Romans or one of the epistles where there's lots of teaching. This is a story about a family. You get in their home, in their caravan, in their car going down the road. You see interactions between husband and wife and mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. You see interactions between people and you see some of the ugliness of life and what it's like to be a family. It's really not a lot different than some of the things that you might see on the television. And God doesn't cover up. He doesn't hide. This is part of His story of redemption of His people. As we look at this passage of Scripture this morning and as we begin this series in the book of Ruth, Searching for a Redeemer, I want to look at this passage under three headings. The first is, step into their story. And secondly, taking the road to nowhere. And lastly, God's providence for Israel, this family, and for you. So number one, step into their story. In verse one, it says that this was in the days when the judges ruled. So this tells you a little bit about the chronology of the story. This was after the death of Joshua, the servant of the Lord. And it was before Saul was anointed king over Israel. That means that God's people were in the land of promise. They had taken possession of it. They were there. But they had no king. There was no one who ruled over them. No one was sitting on a throne. Socially, it's very much different than the world that you and I live in. In many ways, it was much more difficult for Naomi than for a widow who would live in our day. Their society was very family-based, maybe different than some who live in our society today, where we are very individualistic. We think about our own personal goals, what we want out of life, or what we hope God will do for us. My finances and what I think, not necessarily so much about the family or others. It was also very male-dominated, and status and security were very much tied to having a man in the home. Hope was tied to having a male heir. If you had sons, then there was security. There was hope. That's very different than many of us live today. We don't think about security in terms of people as much anymore. Theologically, this time when the judges ruled, this was a difficult time. It was a dark hour in Israel's history. They lived in rebellion against God. There was rampant idolatry among God's people. And there was outright disobedience in God's face. And they lived it before Him. They weren't hiding it in a corner. They walked before Him that way. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, quoting from two other passages in the book of Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, you see there's a very repeatable, noticeable pattern of life for God's people. The people go through these cycles chapter after chapter after chapter. You see them turn away from God in apostasy. They walk away from Him as though they don't know Him at all. The people then are oppressed by some rival nation. Somebody that they were never supposed to to be a part of. Then after the people are oppressed and they have to serve this foreign nation, they cry out to God, Deliver us! Send a Redeemer! Protect us! Take us back! We know we sinned. And so God delivers them. He sends a Redeemer. But it's only temporary in the judges. The judges were were more military leaders than anything else. They came to deliver them from a foreign nation. As in Judges chapter 3, verse 30, 
it was also very transient. It says there, So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. Ehud was a servant of God, a judge of Israel. And he delivered God's people from the king of Moab. And it says after that, And the land rested for 80 years. The land rested. The people did. They were in the land of promise and they stayed there. But it was temporary. This Redeemer was not permanent. And it's an interesting time as you think about God's people living then and think about how the change from one generation to the next can be so significant. One time to the next. In Judges chapter 2, when all of that generation, the generation of Joshua, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done for Israel. One generation, and they don't know who He is. They don't know the greatness of His name and what He did. How significant for families and people and clans of God's chosen people to not know Him or the great things that He did. Why is that happening? Step into their story. Think about what it says in verse 1, Ruth chapter 1. It says that there was a famine in the land. This should get our attention. Bethlehem in the Hebrew actually means that this is the house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. So God's bread basket is empty. There are no crumbs. There is no hope of other loaves of bread. And this is the land of promise. This isn't somewhere that they just went along the way. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, God promised to give His people a land flowing with milk and honey that was supposed to be full and plenty. And it was. When the spies went and saw it, it was a place where wheat and barley and figs and grapes and everything grew. This is a place we should have. Caleb and Joshua said, as as they talked to the spies, and went back and reported, this is a land we should have. So when it says here in Ruth chapter 1 that there's a famine in the land, it should get our attention. It could be the result of natural causes. Maybe they got some bad seed that year. Maybe there was excessive or absolutely no rains at all. Maybe an invasive pest got in on the wheat and the barley and wiped it all out. Maybe there were enemy attacks like there were in Judges chapter 3. Maybe there were other things that took place. Maybe. We don't know. The writer doesn't tell us. But when God made a covenant with Moses, He promised certain things. Two things specifically. He promised covenant faithfulness from God to His people if they obeyed Him. But He also promised that there would be terrible judgments and curses if they didn't. And this included cursing the ground. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Deuteronomy chapter 28... He promises, if you do not obey Me, if you do not walk in My ways, if you're not faithful to the covenant that I am making with you, then I will punish you. I will punish the ground that you live on. I will punish the seed that comes out of you, your children. I will punish your house. It was very clear in these days of the judges to know blessing and curses. It was very evident. They could see it in front of them. And God had cursed the ground before. This wasn't foreign to them. You might remember in Genesis chapter 3 when God spoke to Adam after he sinned. He said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. And by the sweat of your brow you will eat. The ground was cursed. It would bring forth thorns and thistles and briars. And those of you who tend to garden this year, you know about thorns and thistles and briars. And it takes work and time and sweat and tears and maybe a little bit of 
preaching the gospel to yourself to trust that you're going to get anything out of that garden this year. And Lord, where's the rain? You remember God cursed the ground in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 when He flooded the entire world and only those who were in the boat with Noah survived. We believe that that was a worldwide flood. It took place. It was judgment from God. Now He is saying that if He adopted Israel His Son and this adopted Son disobeys Me, He will make the heavens like brass, the crops would fail, and the harvest would be blighted. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. So maybe it's possible, we don't know, but maybe it's possible this famine is directly a result of God's people turning away from Him again as they did in the book of Judges time after time after time. This may be a season where disobedience was rampant. It was represented in every family, every home. People were doing what was right in their own eyes. No one was following the Lord. Man, that sounds like the newspaper today, doesn't it? Step into their family. Think of this ordinary family. They're just another family you could read about any others. They were Ephrathites. That was their clan of the town of Bethlehem in the land of Judah. So Elimelech is part of the tribe of Judah, the land that was given to Judah as an inheritance. And think of their names and what they mean. The sermon this morning is entitled, as you see in the bulletin, Is God King? Elimelech's name literally means My God is King. Naomi's name in the Hebrew means pleasant or lovely. Malin and Killian's names mean weakling and pining. Names are significant in the Bible. They speak to the character and the personhood of the one in front of you. These things are significant. Elimelech, God is king. My God is king, it means. And so that's a question that hangs over these first five verses. Is God king? So, number one, step into their story. Number two, taking the road to nowhere. It says in these brief verses, one through five, that Elimelech decided to leave Bethlehem and go to the land of Moab. They leave Bethlehem, and it seems that they're fleeing from the famine. Does it not, from reading it? But I want to ask you, does it seem like, and could it be possible, based on what we've said about the book of Judges and what you know about the disobedience of God's people, is it possible they thought they could run from God? We'll leave the land of promise. We'll go somewhere else. He won't have His laws on us. He can't put His thumb on us. We can live how we want. We will find bread there because God's house is empty. We can be satisfied there. We can't be here. It's not possible. Were they self-exiling themselves? We will leave the faith. We will walk away from God. And maybe I'm a little bit hard on Elimelech, but he made a decision as the head of his household to leave the land of promise where God had said, I will provide. I will be the one who will fill your plate. I will be the one who puts money in the bank. I will take care of you. You are my beloved son. Elimelech decided to leave. It seems as though he made the choice to forsake God. We have no knowledge of his decision. We don't hear the discussion around the table or maybe in mom and dad's bedroom as the door was shut. We don't know if it was difficult, if they struggled over it. We don't know if it was pragmatic. There's food there. There's not food here. We'll just leave. We don't know if Naomi was in support 
of this decision, if she was even consulted. We don't know if she demanded it. You will take us out of here, Elimelech. You will provide for us. We don't know. And most importantly, we have no idea whether they prayed to the God of heaven or not at all. Lord, I'm making decisions. I don't don't know if I should do it or not. Did they pray to the God of heaven? Sinclair Ferguson says they are forsaking the only place on earth that God had specifically given to His people. The place that He promised to bless them and to provide for all their needs. In the Old Covenant, there were particular geographical spaces and times that God had designated. This is holy. This is where I will dwell. There were specific places that God promised to meet His people. And the promised land was one of those places on earth. And this is one of the one times in the Bible when it seems that God's people were in the land that all the tribes had realized what had been promised. They were finally in it. Moses ached and didn't get to walk in this land. And he died as the people went into it. There were promises that they were looking to hold on to. These people are in it. And they seemingly lay it aside casually. The promised land was the one place on earth where no matter what happened, you could be safe, sheltering under the shadow of the Almighty's wings. Psalm chapter 91, verse 1. As you think about taking this road to nowhere, I believe it was a road to nowhere. They went to Moab. This was not a peaceful place for God's people. These choices were not equal. It's not the same as you deciding. Think about our high schoolers or those who are graduating from college in a couple years. It's not like making a decision between living in New York or Philadelphia or Winsboro or Columbia. I can serve God wherever He puts me. This was different for them. These were not neutral choices at all. God's covenant promises, His church, His people, His officers, His prophets, and most importantly, worship, were all represented in God's people being there in the land, following Him and obeying Him. Have you thought about whether it would be possible in the land of Moab to keep the Sabbath sanctified and holy? Did they really intend to make the three pilgrimages for the pilgrimage feast that they were supposed to keep that God's law said they had to? We have no record of whether they ever went back to Bethlehem to honor the Lord the way that He said they should. We don't know. We know that Moab was a place of pagan worship, that King Balak had hired Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers chapter 22, And we know in Judges chapter 3 that they specifically, the Moabites specifically oppressed God's people. And it wasn't until a judge was raised up that God's people were delivered. This is serious and significant. To just go to the land of Moab casually is not something to just think about lightly. If the famine was for judgment, if it was to tell God's people this is punishment, then at the very least, a famine in the land, in the promised land, was a call for people, God's people, to mourn over sin, to repent of their rebellion, and to lay hold of His promises and believe them by faith. And He made them from one generation to the next. And they were to do what with those stories and those promises? They were to send them down from one generation to the next, They were to tell their children and their children's children. But as we read in Judges chapter 2, in just one generation after Joshua died, they neither knew the Lord nor the greatness of the works that He had done. It's your responsibility, parents and grandparents, 
To tell your children and your children's children the wonders of our God. We are seeing in some ways in our own country what happens when you just assume people will know the Lord. We are reaping the benefits or the curses of judgment of not showing one another the Lord and taking Him seriously. It's interesting and similar as we think about this story, about another story in the Old Testament. Notice that taking the road to nowhere led to some very difficult things for Naomi. I told you this story is a story written from the perspective of a woman and that that's significant and unique in the Bible, and it is. Notice that there are some occurrences for Naomi that take place. And you might imagine this in your life over the period of many years. But in a period of about ten, she attends a funeral for her husband Elimelech who dies. She attends two weddings and then two funerals. That's pretty rough in the space of about ten years. Being in Moab was supposed to be salvation, but it is a nightmare for Naomi. This can't be my life. This can't be what God designed for me. Elimelech is dead. My covenant head is gone. But I do have two sons. Thank you, Lord. I have the possibility of security. And there's cause for rejoicing. Her two sons do find wives. And they get married in the land of Moab. But then you wonder, according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, should they have married those women ever at all? And should she have ever set her heart on grandbabies? And maybe even a son, a grandson for my own sons. And after about ten years, there are no grandbabies. All the conversations between Naomi and Ruth and Orpah. So how's it going? When do you think we might expect to hold that little bundle? And there aren't any. It appears that Ruth and Orpah are barren. After ten years, both of her sons die. And things seem hopeless. I am stuck here in Moab. I don't have my sons. I don't have my husband. I have no prospects. God, what are you doing? This is interestingly similar to the story where Sarai decides, Abram's wife, decides after ten years of not being able to conceive and knowing the promise of God, she says, I'm not going to have children. So I'm going to give you my handmaiden, Hagar. She will raise up an heir for us. She will be able to conceive and bear a son for us. And that will be the son of promise. And we know how that story goes. Ishmael is not the son of promise. She took matters into her own hand and it caused turmoil in her home because of it. Lastly, taking the road to nowhere. And this one hits closest to home for me, I think. That the mirage of greener grass in other pastures. It is something, I believe, that our enemy dangles in front of us. He wants you to believe that the bad things you are going through now would be different If you didn't live where you live. It'll be better somewhere else. In moments of suffering and difficulty, we tend to believe that our vision is accurate and correct. That what we see in front of us and what we see over there, that over there is much better. We'll just leave and go to Moab. It's a deception to believe that if you change your geography, that you don't have to deal with who you are. Elimelech ran from God. And he took his family with him. 
Men and women, do you think about the choices that you make that affect your family? The decisions you make with how to spend your time to to love and honor the Lord, to be in His house on Sunday, to delight in His presence, to open the Bible on Monday through Saturday? Do you think about the habits of your home and how they affect you? Or do you think, if I can just get through these five years, or if I just move, or if I just get another job, or if I didn't have to deal with her or him, if I didn't have to see that every day, I know God would be faithful. They paid for that bad decision with lives in their family. We cannot trust our hearts or our stomachs to lead us and make decisions. They were never intended to be that for God's people. God promised, I will lead you. I will be the one to guide you. I'm your king. That question that hangs over verses 1 through 5, it is shouting to us, God is king. He does answer. He does provide. He does take care of His people. His people. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you know verse 10? It says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The things that you do matter, dear people of God. Obedience to the Lord is never something you settle for. It is something you do regardless. No matter what other people are doing, no matter what everyone is doing. And just because your heart says, I want it, doesn't mean you have to have it. Just because you have a desire for it, or the means to get it, doesn't mean you should have it. In the book of Psalms, it says that after a period of time when the people begged and begged and begged God for things, after He had heard it and heard it and heard it, it says that He gave them the desires of their heart and He sent leanness to their soul. He gave them what they wanted and they weren't satisfied with it. And after no longer being satisfied with Him, they were disenfranchised with life and with God and with one another. And there is a choice. Will I go back to Him? Will I repent? Or will I walk away? Lastly, God's providence for Israel, this family, Naomi's family, and for your family. There's a question that seems to be looming over this passage. If you read through Ruth 1, 1-5 again, you'll notice that there's someone very significant who's not mentioned. It's the only scene in the whole book where God Himself is not mentioned. Where is He? Is God absent from His people? Has He left the promised land? Does He not go with and before them and behind them and around them? Where is He? Is He absent? Is He indifferent? Does He care? Our questions and our doubts, dear people of God, hear me. Our questions and our doubts, even in our tragedies and in our trials, they drive us in one of two places. They either drive us to our knees in the presence of our Heavenly Father, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, or they drive us to our feet and we run away. You say, well, you're putting a whole lot on choices. You're making it a whole lot about me. And we're Presbyterians. We believe the Lord is sovereign. And He absolutely is. But I believe He also works through us and the choices that we make. And sometimes the choices we make hurt us desperately. And I think that's a question that's looming also over this passage. Will you follow the Lord? Will you trust Him? Is He your King? Or will you choose your own way? You ask the question, well, where is God? He doesn't seem to be in verses 
1 through 5. And the answer from the Bible is that God Himself is on the throne where He has always been, where He always will be. God has not moved. If you notice in the book of Judges and here in the book of Ruth, in vivid illustration, God is not the one who moved. Do you remember the commercial from the 90s? I say the 90s because that's when I grew up and we had television. There was a commercial in the 90s where there's an old couple riding in a pickup truck back when the pickup trucks had a bench seat. There wasn't anything in the middle. There weren't any gadgets to plug in or unplug, things to get out of the way. It was just a bench seat. It was simple. And there's an old couple, man sitting on the driver's side and the wife sitting over here at the passenger door. And these young couples are passing them in these cars and trucks. And it looks like one body with two heads as they go by. And the lady looks over at her husband, and they're an older couple, and she says, don't you remember when we used to do that? And he's driving along, and he looks over and he says, I didn't move. I've still been here behind the wheel the whole time. Isn't that interesting? We think if God's gone, He's the one who left. Boy, isn't that the deception of our hearts. If I don't sense Him, He left. And in slow, small ways, over years and and years, it's me who left. I'm the one that slid over. I'm hugging the door over here. Not Him. He didn't leave me. Where is God? He's in the midst of everything that's happening. He's in their judges. God sent them to Him. Remember who God is. I am the one who delivers you. He's in the blessings of covenant faithfulness and covenant unfaithfulness in the curses. He's reminding them in the famine, come back, repent, I will take you back. And He's shown it to them time and time again. I will do it. He's in their choices. He's in your choices. Our choices in life are opportunities to acknowledge who God is and to walk into His ways and to obey Him to be the sons and daughters of the living God, you have more privilege than you could ever imagine. You pray to a God who hears you. There are people in this world who clamor and scratch and claw and hope that there's a God out there who hears and listens. They scratch their bodies and cut their bodies and do horrible things in the name of hoping that a God out there will listen and you serve the living God. Do you believe that that's true? That when you pray, He hears. Where is God? He's in His many and varied providences. In everything that happens, our confession says, these things, His providences, are those things whereby He rules over all creation. How fitting to talk to our children this morning about our Almighty Heavenly Father who created heaven and earth. He is working all things to bring about His kingdom. Everything, including His people. The hymn written by William Cowper. It's based on a poem. Light shining out of darkness. The hymn is called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's on page 128 in our hymnal. One of the lines says, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. He is not gone He is there. 
And He is not silent. He speaks to His people. He speaks through His Word by His Spirit. He is not gone. God's providence for Israel, this family, and for you. Maybe you have given in to some bad theology that says there's only a one and done. Either I obey God, I make all the perfect 100% right choices, or I have to settle the rest of my life. Like somebody in a, in a profession, you make one bad choice and you're out. Sorry, we'll move on to someone else. Or maybe you believe I'm the sum of all my bad choices. God can't use me now, my life is over, and it's up to me. I've got to make the best of it and just scratch out a life. Put aside joy and happiness because I chose not to have those things. God has moved away from me. This kind of thinking exalts self above God. It's the humanistic ideal that many people believe today wholesale. That man is the measure of all things. That's bad theology. That's not true. It exalts you above Christ, above the Creator, the One who made heaven and earth. Certainly you can't be the sum of all your choices. You would never choose God, number one. And that really settles it. If you see grace in your life, then it is foreign to you. It is alien to you. It is righteousness that He has given and grace and mercy that He has poured out from His riches. And not because we earned it. We are left with some burning questions in this passage that we'll look at over the next few weeks. What will happen to Naomi? Was she ever really saved? Can she ever show her face in Bethlehem? Again, how could God do this to Naomi? A good God. Somebody who says He loves people and makes promises. Will He provide for her again? Will He actually save her? And as you think about this passage and think about those questions and your own life, I want to end by saying that these questions anticipate a Redeemer. What Boaz was to be a picture of in this story. But he is not the ultimate end. Ladies, especially young ladies, it is not your goal in life to find a man. You won't be fulfilled with just a man. Hear me. No man can be that for you. No matter how good he is. He can't. Boaz was never meant to be that. He was to be a picture of one who was coming. He was not the full reality. Think about what took place in this family's life. The decisions they made. Elimelech left the place of famine to seek a false blessing in Moab. Jesus the Redeemer left the glories of heaven to bring us true heavenly blessings. To forgive our sinfulness and our sinful ways and our wretched hearts that rebel against God. Elimelech and Naomi exiled themselves from the land of promise to build their own kingdom. We can make it over here. Just the same as we can make it over here. It's no difference. Geography doesn't matter. Rather than waiting on God to build an everlasting kingdom or decide to repent of their sins, but Jesus, our Savior, sent Himself into exile out of the Father's presence of His own will to rescue us from our false kingdoms and to deliver us to real security and hope that's not based on a man or a woman or money. And I know it's easy to be upset these days about money and the lack of value that you get in it. And it seems like everybody took a pay cut as we see prices change in the supermarket and at gas stations. But every time you go to the grocery store, 
Every time you go out to the garden and every time you fill up your tank with gas or maybe you can only put 20 in it, you can be reminded that it is the God of heaven who gave it to you. And cry out to Him to provide for your family. And maybe it is an opportunity for a witness to the Lord in those places. People who work hard in those places are some of the worst treated in the world. In our country. Not just in others, in ours. Have you thought about the last time you went to the store and just shared the love of Jesus by being kind to the person behind that counter? It would be unique in our day. It would absolutely be unique. The last thought I want to share with you that Elimelech and Naomi, as they left, they thought that if they stayed in the promised land, they might lose everything. But our Lord Jesus Christ, on purpose, stripped Himself of everything and ultimately hung naked on a cross to clothe us in righteousness. Praise the Lord, we have a Redeemer. We are not looking for one. He is here and He is not silent. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word that speaks to us. This story is light years away from our experience. We don't know what it's like to be Naomi, to live in the land of promise. But Lord, we cry out to You asking for faith and hope to believe that You are who You say You are, that Your Word is true, that the promises that You make are sure and good, and that the passage of time and our bad experiences of trials and suffering in this life don't dim the light of Your goodness and Your glory. Lord, we pray that You would make that true and real in our hearts. Help us believe the Gospel. We need it desperately. Remind us every time we open the fridge or the cabinet that You fill them, not us. It is work that You have done on Your behalf to provide for Your people. And to whatever degree, as we think about the price of things in our day, may it push us to our knees that You would provide that we would believe that it is You who does it and not ourselves. Help us not to boast in our flesh, but to rejoice and boast in You. In Jesus' name, Amen. For our last hymn, there's an insert in your bulletin. We're going to be singing together before the throne of God above.
take an offering to the glory of God. heaven, we dedicate our tithes and our offerings to you at this time for your glory and for the sake of the spread of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in our city, around us, in our state, our country, and the nations, that you would send the gospel forth, that lost souls would hear of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if for the first time, and believe and be brought into your kingdom. And Lord, as we think about giving tithes and offerings, we also dedicate our finances and ourselves to you, that you would stretch our dollars, that you would provide for us as we know that you do. But whether we see that happen or not, we pray the words that Habakkuk prayed in chapter 3, that though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail and the yields fruits yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in our stalls, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will joy in the God of our salvation. The Lord is our strength. He will make our feet like deer's feet. And He will make us walk on high walls. In Jesus' name, Amen.
benediction of our Lord. Now may the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep restore your soul, lead you in the right paths, and walk beside you in your dark valleys, and bring you safely home to the home of the Lord forevermore. Amen.